Good morning, everyone. It's really nice to welcome you to Priyo to this uh, seminar. My name is Marta Bivan Adal, and I'm a research professor here. I'm also a co-director of our Priyo Migration Center. And we're all here for this seminar called Seeking Refuge in Greece, Local and EU Responses, Taking Stock and Looking Ahead. Uh, and it's really wonderful to see so many people here. And I think we're really looking forward to this exchange. Uh, and I hope some of you have been reading uh, the description of the seminar. Uh, it's an extremely timely seminar uh, with important and serious topics, I think, for all of us. Uh, and we're very fortunate to have a set of speakers here today that can really enlighten us on this and hopefully contribute to uh, an interesting exchange afterwards. And I'd warmly encourage everyone to think of questions that you'd like to ask, because we really have panelists who could help share reflections that are quite unique. So the speakers that we have today, first of all, is Manos Logothetis, General Secretary of Reception of Asylum Seekers in Greece. So a warm welcome to you and also to the Ambassador. It's a pleasure to have you at PRIO. The second speaker uh, is my colleague, Maria gabrielsen Jumbert, um, and she's a research director here at PRIO and a senior researcher. Uh, and this seminar is also part of her project, and I will need to check the name to actually say the name of the project, uh, probably. So Maria is leading a fascinating research project called Humanitarianism, Borders and the Governance of Mobility, the EU and the Refugee Crisis. And this is a project which is funded by the Research Council uh, of Norway. Uh, and both of them will speak first, uh, and then we'll have a panel discussion where we'll also have comments from Trude Jakobsen, and she's the General Secretary for Dropenehave, the Drop in the Ocean, a Norwegian NGO that I think is well known to everyone here and that works in Greece and also more recently in, in Poland as well. And then also we'll have comments from Anna Ratetska, and she's a research fellow and doctoral candidate at the Institute of Sociology at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow, and also has had an affiliation at the University of Oslo here uh, in Norway. So that's the setup for, for today. So a warm welcome to you all, and with that, I'll simply pass the word to you. The floor is yours. Good morning to all. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you, Prio. Thank you, Dropping the Ocean. I would like also to thank NORCAP. I don't know whether they are here. For all the efforts they are doing, together with Dropping the Ocean, in Greece. And I would also like to thank the Norwegians for what they are doing in Greece the last seven years, supporting not only the Greek state, but also the whole society of NGOs on the field. Myself, I'm a doctor, I'm not only the general secretary. So I used to be the doctor of the Samos camp from 2015 up to 2019. I'm working for an organization which is governmental. So it is the Public Health Institute of Greece. And I was called to go to Samos on June 2015, because of the crisis of the migrants coming in, in massive numbers. So there was no one there, and I was actually the first one who arrived, together with two members of UNHCR. After us, there was the Red Cross, then some volunteers from Norway and Denmark, then other NGOs. Gradually, we created the self-made camp called Malagari Port Camp, with some containers and thousands of tents, People were coming and leaving up to 2016. And let's go here to see what, was, what happened back then and what we had to deal with. But I would like to start from 2014. So Greece did not suffer from migrant flows from 2015 on. There was a camp in Greece from 2008 for migrants coming to the island. 
the flows were different. We had something like one or two thousand per year coming in. In 2015, suddenly, not so suddenly, but still, people started coming. And we had something like a thousand a day coming through the island. They, what was the biggest difference? They only stayed for three days. They got some medical help, they got their fingerprinting from the police. They received a note to go to the central police station in Athens, and they fled the country. They fled the country to other European member states. Actually, up to 2016, more people left Greece than came to Greece. Something like 100,000 third country nationals fled Greece together with the rest of the passing by. And then everything stopped. When did the crisis, as we refer to it, start? Was it triggered and started with the inflow? Yes. But for Greece, the crisis started after 2016. Why? The mean arrivals were much higher than the ones that we had and we could actually handle before 2015. We had the backlog of the crisis of 2015. No. We had no backlog. We had the backlog of the first days of the closure of the borders. You remember, I don't know whether you remember, Idomeni, which was a camp on the borders with Northern Macedonia. This was the only backlog. Something like 40,000 people. <laughs> this was the only backlog of the 1,300,000 that left. But we still had flows. And the borders were closed. So this gradually, you see the flows only, and you can see the, the small elevation in 2019. These were the first days of me being a general secretary. When I first took the place, in just six months, I had to accept 53,000 new arrivals in six months. Just to get the figure straight, the whole European Union this year accepted 60,000. So in just six months, we received 53. We had the backlog. I had the reception system of 120,000. You will see the figures. Sorry for not using it that much. But I, I know that the time is confined, so I, I'm focusing on telling you everything that I need to say. So you can see the numbers and the arrivals and the reception and everything. So the reception was in 75,000 plus. The true number was around 115. This was the biggest reception system in Europe, definitely. The second biggest was Netherlands with 35,000. In Germany, they had an ad hoc reception system that was like an accordion and it was confined. Currently, we still have 55,000 places in Greece and we only have 25,000 beneficiaries within the system. How did we do that and how did we actually manage to tackle the problem and the, the crisis? after the, the crisis that started in March 2016, not 2015. When we talk about the Greek crisis, for us, it has nothing to do with 2015. People just passing by is not a crisis. After that, we had a huge crisis. It is not easy to sustain a system of 120 people every day. We had more than 100 shelters, hotels, camps, and flats. 
create a lot of problems for everyday life. We were talking about the Ukrainians, Your Excellency. The Ukrainians is something different, I will refer later on. Why? They do not ask for accommodation, at least in Greece. They live on their own. They do not ask anything else than a simple ID, and they get it. Out of the 35,000 Ukrainians that arrived in Greece, only 400 asked for accommodation to be hosted in a camp or a flat or something. The rest found their own way. And their main concern is when the war will be over to return back. You know, we were really embarrassed because we were too European on the response. We were prepared. We had the systems ready. Second day of the war, a Greek minister comes out and says, don't worry, we have jobs for the Ukrainians. The touristic sector opens. We have 50,000 open places to work in hotels in Greece. Next thing we know is that the Ukrainian ambassador was all over the place telling guys, our men are still being killed in Ukraine. Our women are fleeing the country. They do not care to find a work with a job. What they care about is finding a shelter. And we were really embarrassed. We tried to do our best. We were quick enough because we knew that a big thing is the creation. We have to find jobs for the people coming. We are working currently on that. We have been blamed about secondary movements. We are really focusing on keeping our people within our territory. So we thought that the best thing to say is that, okay, Ukrainians, don't worry. We have jobs for you. Come. We were embarrassed. Second thing, we came out and we said, okay, don't worry, we have places in these schools that we have for refugees, so you can easily learn Greek and your children can attend school. Second embarrassment. Ukraine has their own system through to co due to COVID, through internet, and they can attend, they can attend schools in Ukraine with Ukrainian teachers teaching in their own language. Second visit of the ambassador. Please, stop. Our children, for the time being, will attend the Ukrainian system of education. Once again, embarrassment, not only for us, but also for other European member states, that we were too humanitarian, too quick, and we embarrassed ourselves. We have to respect other people, and we have to understand, we have to walk in their shoes, we have to understand the differences. Third embarrassment, we kept Ukrainians in a different place. Why we did that? A lot of media attention, you are discriminating. We also keep the Yazidi in different camps. I don't know whether you are familiar with the Yazidi population. They are like the Roma population of the Muslim world. With a different religion, they love the sun, they love happiness, they live with the earth. Uh, but they are being hunted down and they have been genocide from other Muslim nations. But we keep them separately. Why? Because they are a minority. We are supposed to protect them. We cannot just leave them in a camp with thousands of other people that might have some conflicts with them. It's the same thing with the Ukrainians. We had only 400 people to host. 90% women with children. We could not easily take them in a camp with 3,000 different nationalities, different religion, different nationality, mostly men, single men. 
for that reason, we kept them separately. The media attention was that we are discriminating. We did our best. This is all about the Ukrainians, but this is also about dealing with migration. There is a lot of controversy. There are a lot of things that are being told from people being way um, far away from the problem itself. I used to wear a vest and work in a camp every day. And I was always telling myself and the rest of the volunteers there that the problem with migration is that the people who are making the decision and wear the tie and the suit are far away from the field. I was blessed to become one of the guys from the vest to the suit. And I know I've been there and I know the difference of smelling the crisis to dealing with the crisis from an office but in Brussels or in Geneva. Yes? So it's totally different. And the people, all they need is someone to talk to them, to understand them, share their vision, their dreams, their hope, and help them with what they think they can do. Share expectations, be the father figure in their life that will address the issues that they might face in the future. They come here because they think, and they might be true, that Europe is their paradise. Not all of them come because they fled the country due to a danger. As far as Greece is concerned, currently we are accepting people from countries, not Syria, not Afghanistan, that have no active war that have no active huge conflict. There might be some small conflicts, but we are accepting people that are just going after their dream. I accept the guy from Senegal who wanted to become a fashion designer in Milan. All he had to do, because he could not get a visa to Italy, is to go by Greece to Italy. He did not care whether he would get asylum or not. He did not care whether he will be rejected or accepted to Greece. All he cared about is to get a paper to leave the F island of Greece that keep him confined to a space that he could not escape. And this is a story that I shared with the deputy general director of DG Home of Europe when we, I told her, we have to visit. We have to go within the tent to talk to the people to share their visions and to understand. Because if you do not understand, we are just talking politics. And if you just talk politics, you are talking about numbers, figures, PowerPoint, and things like that, that have no actual meaning. Because dealing with migration is dealing with people. Alive people. People who have everyday needs and big dreams like we have. So you cannot deal like that. Time stops in a PowerPoint presentation. In real life, time does not stop. It continues minute by minute. Now we are talking, a mother, a woman, might give birth to a child someplace in Greece. And we have to respond to that. We cannot, we are the guys in the reception identification service of Greece, that we have to deal together with the NGOs and the support of all the humanitarians with the everyday lives of the people, their needs, their emergencies, everything. It's not about all this. So 
Let's go one more thing and then I will be gone and I will be open to all these questions. I don't have a sign yet, no? No, <laughs> really quick, yeah. So the Moria thing is what brought Greece back to attention? Before the Moria arson, we were facing a crisis alone again. After 2016, the whole Europe thought that the crisis was over. And it was over for most of us, but not for the Greeks. Why it was over? Because this one million diffused in, do you know the population of the European member states in total? Because at some point it is about numbers. It's just the European member states, there are 400 million in the population. One million in the 400. It was not such a big deal. They diffused. They were integrated in some form with difficulties in some countries like Germany that accepted the big burden, but still it was not such a huge thing. But we were left with no attention, only the support of the humanitarians and the NGOs, and with every year having something like 50,000 arrivals, with the exception of 2019, as I said, that we had 73,000. A broken system of asylum, Your Excellency. There was no streamline. It was all everything was confused. So we had to set up the things in a line. We focused on making new legislations and making the asylum procedure faster and more efficient. Why? What is the asylum procedure? People come and ask you a question: Am I eligible to protection according to the Geneva Convention? Am I eligible to be called a refugee? Do I deserve your protection? That's the question. And in many European states, we fail to give a simple answer. Quickly. We did it in six months. That was the fastest that we could actually get for the first decision. We were blamed. You are doing it too quickly. In the past, we were doing it in three years. We were blamed. You are doing it too slowly. Is six months too quickly? Allow me to say, I talked to the people, if we could give them an answer the second day on, they would be happy. They just come to us, they share their story, which is their life story. I'm a member of the LGBTQI society, I live in Tehran, my mother does not speak to me, and I'm afraid that they might kill me. How long does it take before you give him an answer that he deserves protection? Some days to prove that he is a member of the LGBTQI, psychosocial analysis, report. Okay, but then, is it that copious, that difficult? No. There might be some cases that are difficult. Asylum is about trustworthiness of the story, blah, blah. Okay, but six months, okay. For the first decision, he can actually reapply and if he gets appeal, blah, blah. It's a procedure. So we did things like that, and we tried to tackle the crisis ourselves with the NGOs, I have to say again. And then Moria broke down. Because we are talking about management and migration crisis. We talk about the crisis of 2015. We talk about the Greek crisis from 2016 to 2019. And then we talk about the Moria arson incident. What happened in Moria? There was, because everything is related, there was a big festival in Berlin the one with the open chairs. 
a political party, decided to make a big festival in Berlin with 7,000 empty chairs set in front of the Berlin Parliament building to call in for new refugees because they have space. A few days after, COVID erupted within the Moriak. We had to set up a quarantine in the camp. This was the perfect opportunity for an arson. There was a riot and the camp was burned to the ground. What is really interesting about this arson? I don't know how, who, how many of you have been to Moria. Moria at that time had something like 13,000. Moria was a camp of 2,500 places originally, capacity. So it was hosting five times the population it should, mostly in the jungle, as it was called, which was olive tree uh, fields in the surrounding of the camp with self-made tents, blah, blah. What was really interesting, we brag and we say that no one was killed. We were, we did everything that we could actually to avoid having someone being burnt. True. For historical reasons, yes. Still, everyone was prepared for this action. People fled the camp alone. They had all those things collected. You might get reports from the volunteers. With the help of the authorities, with the help of the people on the ground, they fled themselves. There was on the ground, there was this thing, the rumor. If you live in the camp, if you've been, if you smell the smell, and you talk to the people, everyone knew that Moria would be burned. Was it the first fire? No. But it was the first fire that when the chief of the police called me, he told me, Manos, this is it. It will be burned to the ground. I was there early the same morning, there witnessing this thing. It burned down in one day, no, in three. It was something organized. Why? Because people were connected to these 7,000 empty spaces in Germany and they wanted to do a movement towards that. Why I'm saying that? Because everything is interrelated. The word of mouth within the migration world is really strong. Something that is being said today here might have an impact in the people staying in a camp of Greece. Because a lot of volunteers, a lot of attention. But what was the good thing about it? They brought back the Greek crisis into the media screen. We tried to do our best. We tried to find places. Solidarity started to recommence through the member states. And then it was the time that we had to decide that we have to make something new. We had enough with the jungle and the dangers of the jungle. We started creating new camps. We have three already built. Another two will be built in the next year, let's hope. One in Mytilini, the other three in Samos, Kos, and Peleros, and one in Chios as well. Modern camps that look like a normal uh, reception camp with roads, toilets, blah, blah. And then Evros happened, and we, I reached my final minute, and I will say what is happening currently in Greece. Evros was an attempt from the Turkey side to use migrants to invade my country. And I'm not saying that. It was officially stated by President Erdogan in the media. He said, I'm going to send 100,000 refugees to Greece and Europe. If someone says that, it means that he has something to do with it. What did we do from that? We increased, with the support of the European Union, our guards in the borders. 
There are a lot of allegations for pushbacks, for uh, brutal things happening on the borders. Okay. I challenge everyone to visit Greece and to see what is going on. What is going on is that we have a sea border and we are there. We do not have friendly relationship with Turkey that is well known to all over the world. So we have this rule of one-on-one. If we take a boat out on the Aegean Sea, they take a boat out as well. According to the EU-Turkey common statement, Turkey is responsible to prevent every illegal exit from the Turkish side to the European. This is clearly stated in the EU-Turkey common statement that we signed in 2016 and killed the crisis back then. There is a second paragraph that Turkey is responsible. They are not only responsible for returns, which they do not fulfill, Your Excellency. There is zero returns to Turkey for the last three years. Two of them due to COVID. They refuse to take people back due to COVID. Anyhow, they do not fulfill that part, but they have to fulfill the second part, and this is what is happening. We call them in, we are there, and we will continue to be there to fulfill what is written on paper from all the member states according to what should be done on the borders. We take care about the human life, we respect human life, and we will continue doing so. We will offer refuge to everyone that comes to Greece and deserves to be a refugee, and we will also take care with integrating also the rest of the people since, and I want to close with that, we have to stop fooling ourselves within all people living in the European part of the world, but there are no returns. And I would be glad to answer why there are no returns, because still in Europe we talk about returns as if they are happening. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Manos. So I encourage everyone now to note down your questions, because we will have time for questions and comments afterwards. But we will proceed first um, with the next speaker, who is Maria. So I'll give the, the floor to you. And while you set up, I can also um, inform everyone that the, the seminar is being recorded. So when we get to the Q&A afterwards, uh, we'll be having some assistance with a microphone. Uh, and the reason is that we would like to have it for the recording. And this is also the reason why we'd like to encourage everyone when they ask questions to just briefly introduce themselves with their name and their affiliation. So that's the reason why. So I'll come back to that when we get to the Q&A. And for now, Maria, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Marta. And uh, thank you very much, Manos, for this uh, excellent uh, uh, presentation. Um, and, and for sharing your really on the ground uh, experiences and, and insights. And then it's um, both from the side, as you said, wearing the, the, the vests in the camps, but also now being, being, having a position where you talk to, to people, different people um, deciding on how these processes are, are carried out. Um, so I'm very happy that, that you share these very concrete descriptions with us. I will uh, attempt to, to follow up with um, putting this in the larger framework of uh, discussing what are the different borders that we are looking at uh, in the European space, um, recognizing that, that the borders are different in different ways. Um, this is, uh, as Marta mentioned, based on um, uh, research conducted in the projects on what we uh, um, in research have started to call humanitarian borders. Um, and I'll come back to that concept also throughout the 
the presentation, but just to, to introduce with, uh, it is a term often used to, to describe the, the, both the tensions, but also the different uh, interests and types of responses that occur at the borders. So it's the, by calling it humanitarian borders, it's a, it's a way to emphasize that both civil society, humanitarian actors, but also border uh, guard agents um, um, and, um, and, the, the, and the policies um, formulated to, to govern the borders are, are part of um, are, are part of a, a, a greater uh, whole that, uh, that uh, play on each other and in mutually influence each other. Then the question is, are there mainly tensions between these different types of actors or are they um, mutually reinforcing uh, some, um, some um, trends and, and ways of, of, of governing these borders and, and governing the, the mobility across these borders? But before I come back to asking some more questions about the utility of this concept for us to, to better understand the mobility across uh, European borders today, I'll take you through some observations from, from this project. Um, so they, they will be based in the um, uh, experience in Greece, but I'll also mention some examples from, from elsewhere in Europe where we see similar types of humanitarian borders, to, to call it uh, that, from the situation in northern France, where we also had sort of camps being dismantled and then built up again, um, etc., a uh, very few uh, brief words of uh, to to present this uh, picture which was taken by uh, the um, uh, by a young researcher who contributed with the chapter in a book that i edited on different types of um, civil society responses to migrants arriving in europe so this uh, picture by giovanna di matteo is from what was called the life vest graveyard in Lesvos, and which eventually became, as she, she describes in her chapter, uh, a site that uh, volunteers traveling to Lesvos would sort of uh, would would revisit and almost as a ritual to to um, have a sense of the. Um, um, of the numbers of people who had passed by, and the, and the, and sort of to to yeah to, to have a sense of the, um, the scale uh, of of the events, uh, and then discussing this in the framework of of sort of uh, uh, what what can also be called the disaster tourism, uh, but but uh, but also uh, uh, raising a lot of questions about uh, as we discussed earlier about how you how you follow up uh, af after this. Um, I'll take you through uh, three key <laughs> key points uh, in my presentation. First, um, the, what are the different scales of, of responses and, uh, and or, or levels from the local level to the national and the EU uh, level of responses uh, to migration? Uh, and what are the different roles of these, uh, these actors? Then some observations about the different kinds of borders. There's been many discussions in past months, especially, uh, following uh, the invasion of Ukraine and the reception of Ukrainians uh, in Poland, in many of the other neighboring countries to Ukraine, but also elsewhere in Europe, uh, so, um, observing that the, the reception was very different then uh, than from, uh, for instance, the situation in 2015, 2016. But I'll make some broader observations about what, what are these unequal borders and, and how come. And then I'll... Uh, come to 
uh, to discuss the, these, these tensions that there are around these humanitarian borders and this idea of um, the, um, if uh, the, the tensions between uh, assisting, uh, saving lives at the borders and the fear that that will compromise um, the border control uh, mandates. So first, um, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll start with this. I had to put it in the other order first. I will start with, with uh, the, these observations on the, on the unequal uh, borders. There, first and foremost, uh, there, there are different borders uh, uh, surrounding Europe. These are land borders, sea borders, uh, as you already touched upon. Um, and, and there are also different um, stretches of sea. One thing is to plan the crossing from Turkey to one of the Greek islands. Another thing is to plan the longer crossing from Libya over to Italy, for instance. And we see also how that affects the, the actual vessels used to, uh, to plan for these sea crossings and the risks uh, involved. Uh, it also affects... Um, um, yeah, it also affects... Um, um, how these borders are actually uh, crossed. Uh, we also know that, they, that when we discuss these situations of how Europe can, can respond to larger uh, numbers of arrivals, often also called irregular migration, in this context is often less about the, the um, uh, migrants arriving by plane, simply because that is much easier to control upfront. Who enters a plane? Do they have a visa? Do they have ID papers? Do they have a right to actually go off the plane afterwards? So that is why we are left with other means of crossing the borders when discussing this type of migration. This also leads to different, very different means of actually controlling these borders. The maritime borders are much harder to seal off you can build uh, an, an actual wall uh, along that border, you, uh, maybe, even if there have been <laughs> maybe attempts at, at doing that. But that means that there uh, been, have been massive investments from the EU uh, to build up a more sophisticated border surveillance system to, to, um, to have information about where people are leaving from, at which uh, the scale, where are they heading. At the same time, that doesn't uh, work as a system for that. That works as an overarching surveillance system. It doesn't work as a uh, a system to actually individually check and control migrants at sea. Uh, and and um, uh, and I'll come back back to to to, to that in, in a way because it is. Um, this, this uh, screening of whether people that, that Maman has just described for us, uh, whether people have, uh, have their ID papers, uh, are they seeking asylum uh, or not, this is an, um, a process that needs to be formally, legally, that needs to be done on land. It's not something that can be done uh, out at sea. In addition, there is a specific uh, obligation uh, at sea for, for any vessel, no matter if it is a private uh, one or a commercial vessel or uh, a Frontex vessel or wh whoever it is, there, there is an obligation uh, at sea to provide rescue if you come across another vessel um, in distress, another vessel in, in the, the risk of, of drowning. So, so that sets up the, these, um, these border crossings for, a, for a, a quite a different 
um, situation. And it also means that no matter the amount of investments to attempt to have a better overview of what happens at sea, to collect data, to have surveillance systems here, um, that's the... Um, that can't be done in, in a way seen from a border agent perspective. That can't be done in, in, in a perfect way. That needs to be done on land. Uh, and, and just to very briefly mention also that attempts to then stop people at sea and then bringing them back would also be, uh, as long as it's ca carried out by European actors, would also be a breach of um, uh, the, the right to seek asylum because you cannot know who at sea if these are people who have actually the right to protection uh, or not. So then it's, it can amount to a collective expulsion without, uh, without um, an actual assessment of, uh, of the background of, of, of those people. So this uh, sets us up for different forms of humanitarian suffering uh, along the borders, from the surroundings at sea. Uh, we have the camps uh, in, uh, in Greece, in the northern France as well. And also to briefly mention the, the, the situation that we saw arise in the forests between or along the border between Poland and Belarus. Um, and um, th that, are, uh, uh, that, that are both a result of the, the geography, the, the harshness of the geography of the borders that they are crossing, but also of to, to which extent we are willing to... to let people cross these borders and then handle uh, whether they have a right to stay or, or not. Uh, then uh, so some mentions on the, on the different levels of, of responses uh, that we can also come back to in, in our discussion afterwards. Uh, but th this mainly as a, as, a, as a reminder that there are a multitude of actors who, who respond. Uh, we have seen that also now recently uh, with many volunteers uh, regular citizens happening to live close to the border with uh, Ukraine, who who then of course go out of the rate and mobilize to to provide assistance, as the local populations on the Greek islands have have done over many years. Um, we have seen, uh, which we will also hear more about uh, in in Greece, and we have seen that also I think in Poland, international volunteers traveling to Greece to, to help out. Then we have the role of the, the local municipalities, and then we have the national government, and then the EU responses uh, to, to support, um, because the, the Schengen area and then the European Union uh, uh, has a common approach, or want, want to at least have a, uh, work together on the reception of, uh, of refugees and other migrants. Uh, but, but here, just to, uh, to just also highlight that there might be different stages when where some actors are uh, more at the front line in responding. The EU maybe comes a little bit later, so the the, the local population maybe are often the, the very first ones to to respond and give crucial assistance, um, whereas the others may may come in after to to see what's uh, what are the. The national government can, for instance, will be the ones, for instance, deciding on whether uh, work permits will be given or whether how to organize uh, sh shelter in the longer term. So, so, so they, 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 uh, there are different roles, different types of cooperation, but also different roles in, in different st stages uh, here. Um, but, but of course, there are, all, there, there are many instances of, uh, of, uh, 
of uh, mutual co cooperation, but also of, of tensions uh, between the different levels in, in terms of, um, um, for instance, national governments providing um, uh, stricter regulations on, on what can be done or not by, by uh, um, uh, civil society organizations uh, wanting to help out. So we have had that discussion more recently in, in Norway with the, the government explicitly um, uh, asking people to not travel by their own to Poland to pick up Ukrainian refugees, to take one, one example there. Um, so uh, now to, to my final p point uh, on, on these tensions between uh, uh, the humanitarian responses to uh, people crossing these borders and uh, the control of these borders. Um, we, we can discuss how, how can we organize the best reception of, uh, of asylum seekers and other migrants at, at these borders, uh, while still probably having to assume that borders will be controlled by states at some, um, uh, some, in some way or another, as long as uh, there is an, a perception of uncontrolled migration. Uh, but how then can we conceive of, of, a, of a human and lawful border management that, that also takes into account that even if people don't have a right to stay or a right to international protection in the longer term, these are all human beings uh, that uh, have also basic human rights in terms of the, the right to life, the right to dignified treatment, and, and many, many other uh, accounts. Um, then my my um, the, the, what we see when when studying the different responses along different borders of uh, the European Union is a uh, strongly entrenched belief at the state and EU level that uh, more assistance to migrants might make it easier for migrants to to cross that border and make it, may make it more attractive to cross that border and it is what we often summarized as the idea of a pull factor, that there is an idea that if there's more search and rescue operation in the Mediterranean, that might attract more migrants to try and, and use that. It is a very appealing logic, and I think that's also why it is so widespread, uh, because it, it seems simple to say, okay, that there is more help there, then of course that's why more migrants go go that way. So, so I think it's, it's why it is... Um, also so strong, but it, it in turn also leads to uh, a sus general suspicion against every form of citizen-led or grassroots uh, NGO-led uh, type of assistance to, to migrants. I won't uh, be able to take you through <laughs> what makes migrants uh, leave in, or um, uh, go in a certain direction or not, but we can observe that uh, migration dynamics, what creates an aspiration to migrate, as you touched upon with some uh, examples here, or uh, whether it is a need to, f to, to leave or, or an, a desire to leave, uh, and the feasibility and the choice of where you go, they are much more complex than this, than, than just if there is more assistance here or there. But it creates what I try to summarize as a fear of saving lives and a sort of downward competition among EU states to, not, to, to try to not be the more, the more attractive place to, to go. So just to conclude uh, on that, uh, these humanitarian borders, uh, what are they? Are they useful for our 
reflection beyond sort of an interesting academic concept. The, the logic of humanitarianism is one of saving human lives without discriminating between older, younger, um, between nationality, etc. It is about uh, providing assistance and protect human lives. The logic of borders um, is, and we can we can say whatever we want <laughs> about it, but the logic of borders is to protect a, a sovereign state territory, and it is the, thus about sorting, about controlling inside versus outside. But both have a logic of protection, and and some argue that both these play on each other and and sort of. Um, uh, run the same errand, but there are also tensions between between these. Uh, uh, so the, I'll, I'll leave it there as as a question: how how can how can we how can we think about these these logics together um, when when thinking about the, the reception of uh, refugees and other migrants across different borders uh, in the EU? Thank you very much. Thank you, <clears throat> thank you very much, Marianne. I think. Both you and, and Manos really help us remember that when we talk about migration, we talk about people. So I think that's something we should bring with us into the next section. So I'd like to invite the four speakers now all to, to come up to the stage. Um, and then I think we'll start with uh, Trude and proceed with Anna. You'll have to find out where to sit, I'm afraid. I ha we haven't uh, orchestrated this, but I'm sure you can manage. And there's glasses of water for you as well. <laughs> Wonderful. So I think we'll start then with, uh, with Trude, uh, and then I'll also invite Anna to give some thoughts uh, reacting to what has been said or from your, your own perspectives and experiences. Uh, and then I would propose that we also offer Manos a chance to react again, Maria. And after this, I will open the floor to, to everyone. So please don't be shy and be ready with your questions or comments. Trude, the word is yours. Yes, please. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you to PU for organizing uh, this event. We're very happy for it. We're very happy for the visitors from Greece as well. Uh, it's nice to, to get into conversations and to see how we can make things better in the future because that's what we all want. I want to have a few, I have a few comments uh, to um, uh, the Secretary General's uh, uh, presentation. And uh, he was saying that the crisis in Greece started in 2016. And I would say also that uh, that's when the, the human uh, suffering got much, much worse. Because in 2015, I was, unless it was from August that year and uh, the following months, people were passing through. There were two or three days in Greece and they managed to reach their uh, destination that they wanted to go to within a week or two weeks. And then they could start a life. They can at least apply for asylum in the country and everything. So, of course, there were sufferings that time as well because the number of arrivals was so high. I remember we had um, 9,000 people coming to Lesbos in one day. Uh, and there were uh, shipwrecks, there were drownings. Uh, but still, most of the people that managed to get across were in a pretty good condition and um, of course very very happy to to have to be able to start a life and to to escape from the war that's that's the reason they left in the first place but do you and I say the human suffering started because the influx after 2016 when borders closed were still quite high 
2019 with 75,000 people arriving to Greece in one year. Um, that's, a, that's a really high number. And I mean, for Norway, if we had seen these numbers here, it would be really, really crazy. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and of course, the living conditions with all these arrivals were also um, not good at all. People living in tents, in camps, um, not sufficient food, no education for the kids, you know, and it all has to do with the numbers of people. It was too much to handle. And then, uh, of course, the waiting time uh, before people could actually get a decision uh, was long. I remember at one point they had to wait, like they got an appointment for their asylum interview, which was four years later. later. <laughs> you know, what does it do to you psychologically to someone who has left a, a country in war with their kids and they see that, okay, we will have the first interview in four years from now. And what will we do in the meantime? You know, living yes, in this tent? Yes. So this, and that's exactly what um, people have told me when I visited the camp, that, you know, this waiting time is the worst. Not knowing if or when or where I can continue my life, it's something, it's really hard to bear. And I, I would say the people in the camp that managed, they're so strong, you know, that they can actually manage to live with this. And some of them also have traumas from before, carrying with them, and still coping with the situation is, uh, I think some of them are made of something else. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I, can also, I just want to say also, I can understand the fatigue of the local population in Greece, because, and it hasn't, has nothing to do with racism the way I see it. I know a lot of Greeks, I speak to a lot of Greeks, and I speak the language. Uh, and it has to do with, you know, living next to uh, a refugee camp, a bad-conditioned refugee camp, a tent camp, living close to it, seeing the suffering every day, without being able to do anything. Uh, it, it is, it's really, I understand that people get tired of this. They want a change for the people, first of all. Uh, and we have seen this fatigue, we have felt it as well, and we have also felt something that has not to do with the fatigue, but more comes from somewhere else, uh, where we have experienced attacks also. But that's a very, very you know, low number of, of people that, would, um, that, that we have experienced, you know, with the right extremes actually traveling also to the islands to use this as an arena for uh, making their point. Something new. I have also experienced attacks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I just want to yeah, and then just finally, I just want to say also about Moria. You mentioned Moria. To me, Moria was a hell. And um, when the fire happened, maybe strange to say, but I was happy. I was happy, and I was happy it was burnt all down, and I was happy, of course, that no one was injured. I would not be happy if any had been injured or. Uh, or, or died or anything, but I was happy because it, I knew it forced a change. It forced the attention and it forced a change. Uh, I visited Moria last time just before the pandemic, January 2020, and it had 22,000 people living there. And you said the smell and the, and, and the smell. I mean, if you can't really understand what this place is if you haven't smelled it. It's uh, and, and living in this, uh, it's unbearable. It forced a change, even though I saw a lot of NGOs and volunteers that felt sad because, you know, it's strange. It's a, it's a, 
people get some kind of attachment and personal uh, engagement to a place they might have been working in. And, uh, and, and they feel sorry for the people losing their homes. This is not their homes. They live in tents, you know. So, as I said, I was happy. It forced a change. Uh, change isn't exactly good enough, I would say, because I don't think anyone should live in camps at all in Europe. I think Europe together could find better solutions. And we have shown now with the Ukrainian situation that we can find solutions if we want, um, and fast. So camps are never never the solutions, at least for a long period of time. For, yeah, I mean, for shorter periods, yes, I can understand it, but not for years. So I think, uh, yeah, I'm probably used my time. <laughs> so I, shall I pass the word? Thank you very much, uh, Trude. And I think that we can also ask you more questions as well from the, the work that you and the organization uh, is doing uh, in Greece and I think also in, in Poland now. Um, so we have this sort of uh, government perspective and the civil society and the research perspective. And we also wanted to include another research perspective. So we've invited uh, Anna, who is a researcher uh, who is based in currently in Oslo, but also with an affiliation at the University in Krakow. Uh, she works on migration and grassroots mobilization. Um, and uh, her main focus, of course, is not like for any of researchers at all, has not been for many years what has happened right now, because it's happened right now. Uh, but I think that Anna is maybe the best positioned of us here today to be able to share some reflections on connections. Because as several people have mentioned, we are in an exceptional situation at the moment in Europe where we have this, this war on European territory and this massive displacement of 8 million people internally displaced within Ukraine. Uh, and probably 6.3 million people have crossed out, many of them in and out and returning, and we don't quite know how many are where at all. Uh, but we also do know that many of them have found their way to Poland. And there are, is a lot of different things that we could share around that. So, and I'd like to invite you to just share some reflections in this broad landscape of whatever you find relevant to share with us. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me and uh, for this seminar. It's really uh, been amazing to hear your talks and uh, learn uh, about the situation. So, uh, and look at the Polish situation uh, that I'm like looking uh, to and observing from like broader pers perspective of what ha is happening on various uh, borders of Europe. And uh, the Polish situation is uh, like twofold because we have like two, although one border on the east side of Poland, we have like two borders because there is the Ukrainian border, the border with Ukraine, where we uh, are inviting uh, now 3.6 millions of uh, Ukrainian refugees. And there is the Polish-Belarusian border where there's a couple of thousand uh, refugees, migrants coming as well since um uh, September, August, September, and uh, who are not so very welcomed at all, uh, or they are not being allowed to uh, enter Poland. Uh, so, um, driving on what um, you said, it's uh, about asking people whether they deserve uh, the uh, protection or getting asylum. So I would say that on the Polish-Belarusian border, Polish state doesn't uh, like hinders or prohibits to uh, ask this question, like to ask for uh, being protected. It is actively engaged in like pushbacks and not allowing people 
to uh, make this uh, request, which are which they are uh, eligible for, which they which they have right for as 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 human beings, and uh, that is really problematic. And uh, I re I I was listening to uh, the description of the situation in Greek and what the Greek state was doing, and that is really in great contrast for me with what the Polish government is doing because. Uh, Polish government didn't want to see migration as an issue for a long time, at least for since uh, 2016 when the law and order started uh, to be in charge. Uh, so migration was was pushed aside. It was uh, not really being talked about, and also the the number of the refugees accepted in Poland steadily was decreasing. Uh, And then, uh, like to, I don't know, to surprise to every, everyone in Poland, we have like this different flows of migrants coming or refugees coming to Poland, which Polish government is not drilling and is not able to tackle. And uh, so one way of uh, dealing with this situation on the Polish-Belarusian border is pushing up people, building uh, a wall uh, and uh, criminally creating a zone, no-go no zone, also criminalizing help because uh, people who are uh, helping uh, refugees are being prosecuted and they are really facing uh, charges. Uh, and uh, and I guess that didn't happen in Greece at all. So people were free to come, free to help, and uh, were invited uh, to do that. Whereas in Poland, on the Polish-Belarusian-Ukrainian uh, border, it was like in Greece. Yes, yeah? so people were invited to come and to help. Or even more, they were like maybe not required, but they were the only one. Like the volunteers, the NGOs were the only one uh, that were helping or are still helping, and uh, that's really like uh, delegating the the state's re obligations to to every like to civil society, but also to citizens and. Uh, And that is something that is still haven't been solved in Poland. So the state only, I don't know, uh, Polish state government only one month ago appointed a, a plenipotentiary to deal with the crisis. Uh, but in fact, there is no institution, no committee to organize help, to coordinate it among uh, local governments and NGO. The government is not accepting any advice from the civil society or from the uh, academics. So although there are some studies, people like have been uh, engaged in research on helping refugees or maybe know, have some know-how, the, the government is really uh, like not willing to... Uh, to include that uh, and uh, and to, what we could also see comparing Greece to the Ukrainian crisis but also Polish-Belarusian crisis uh, border crisis we see that different kind of victims the deserving victims and undeserving victims uh, those people from Ukraine mostly women and children looking like being a perfect victim yeah uh, so uh Uh, yeah, so families, yeah, women without men. So there is uh, in Polish uh, newspapers you could find these headlines. 
wom unattended women on unprotected women coming to Poland in are in risk of being trafficked. Well, there was no case of trafficking registered, but there is already this 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 picture present, and uh, and then there are these undeserving victims which are not so very welcomed, which cross Polish Belarusian border or want to cross Polish Belarusian border, which are of, of uh, non-white. Uh, non-Europeans, and uh, we see that they are not so very welcome. But we could also that see in the uh, flow from Ukraine that there are different kind of migrants uh, entering Poland, also students from or other citizens from Asia, Africa, which uh, were unfairly treated on Polish borders. There were Roma people, which uh, were unfairly treated on the border and later on in the reception centers. And uh, there were also uh, Belarusian or Russian citizens, which were also unequally treated. So we see this differentiation and this uh, conditioning of help. And of course, like uh, migrants from Syria, from Afghanistan, coming through Greece and other uh, Southern Europe countries are also not that welcomed. And there is no mobilization, uh, like that brought mobilization from the, I know, AU uh, uh, structures. They don't get this temporary protection that was so quickly uh activated uh, when the Ukrainians started to come. They got the protection, the right to be in the European Union, to work in many countries, to get healthcare and other um, social benefits. So that, did, that didn't happen when people from Syria flee. So that's, uh, that's really problematic, but that's really like we can see that now and we can see the, the difference and what, the, what are the factors that uh, differenti differentiate the conditionality of help yeah and that's uh, yeah and maybe we can talk some more later wonderful thank you very much Anna for sharing uh, these these reflections and I think you managed to touch on a lot of very important things um, I think in in particular the the many dilemmas that are inherent I think also Manas you were already in your talk uh, pointing to many of these things and I think the sort of uh, inherent inequalities of the world and the position of Europe relative to the rest of the world uh, and then the sort of geographic proximity of different places where there are conflicts to that uh, and how we perceive that proximity or distance which is also a question of perception and not just kilometers so I think a lot of really big big questions I'm not sure we'll be able to resolve all of them today but we'll try to at least touch on some of them so Manus would you like to reflect yeah. on a few points before <clears throat> we pass to Maria and then open I know that that is, it's really interesting. It's not about kilometers, but sometimes it is about numbers and it's about conventions and stuff. We are trying to deal with the modern problem with the convention that came back, a treaty that came back from 51 in Geneva, concerning protection in general and refugees and stuff like that. So uh, it is really difficult. There, there are 64 years that passed and the world has changed. And this treaty was built on the problem of the Second World War not on a modern war. So we have to, let's say, readdress the issue. The temporary protection was given to the Ukrainians, but it was given for a different reason. Allow me to say, because I was a member of this whole debate mm -hmm. about what we should do. The incoming population was huge, that's one. 
So in comparison to the crisis of 2015 of the 1,200,000, we were facing a threat of at least 10 million Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine. So we had to do something fast. We would not be able to go through the normal procedure of asylum. Ukrainians will have to stand in lines forever in order to get the normal refugee status. That is how we actually activated this temporary protection. There was a debate about activating this temporary protection scheme back in 2015, but the debate decided not to move forward to that direction because is it so beneficial to be under this temporary protection? Yes, because you get a license to work, is one answer. Yes, because you have access to education and health. The truth is that even if you are an asylum applicant, you also have access to that, at least in Greece. And according to the Geneva Convention, you have access to health from day one, education from day one, and work in Greece after six months. So if you are an asylum applicant for more than six months, you get a working permit. Temporary protection gives you no other benefit. You cannot get accommodation, you cannot get cash supplement, because you are not an asylum applicant, you are supposed to make it on your own. You are like a recognized refugee. So it is only up to integration and your own work to be supported. So on the balance, you have to see the population and decide which is the best solution with what you have on your hand. I would not totally disagree that, okay, it is too fast. I, I, I told you examples that we were too fast. We give this temporary protection. Now I cannot give them cash supplement. And they need some extra money because they are running out of money. Mm -hmm. And because they are recognized, according to EU legislation, they have to work. Mm -hmm. So we were too quick mm -hmm. on giving this temporary protection, humanitarian talking. Mm -hmm. But it is difficult when you make decisions wearing suits and you have to make a decision that is the best for the time given. Mm -hmm. You might rethink it later on, may change it because we might learn from our mistakes, mm -hmm. and we have to learn. So it is a process. We, should not have, we, do, we do not have to be stubborn that we made the decision, we stay to the decision, <coughs> we can change, mm -hmm. because we might make mistakes. But this is the reality, because I was part of this decision on temporary protection. I don't know whether it was the best one, but it was one decision that we had to make quickly. And again, in the Geneva Convention of Excellency, it is time that we start talking about that. Once again, about protection, how we give it, on what grounds, mm -hmm. only war, civil war, threats, LGBTQI things. Mm -hmm. Because sexual orientation is something that we do not touch because in our modern society is something that we perceive as 100% part of our normal life. And thank God we are doing that. It's not the same all over the world. And not mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the sexual orientation in some countries is completely different. For us, we say, okay, they are normal people like us, so we don't talk about it. There is nothing to talk about. You have your own sexual orientation, you make your choice. Thank you very much. We do not do, not do any discrimination. Yes, but other countries do. And these people deserve to be given asylum on their sexual orientation, allow me to say. Because they are under the threat of being killed just because they have a different sexual orientation. So we have to adapt, that's what I'm saying. We move too fast for us, thank God. We created modern societies, we are thankful for that. We have a wonderful living, thank God. But we have to 
take a step back and rethink some things from the beginning. We are not under the Second World War. Thank God we do not have the Third World War yet. But this is a time to yeah. think on basics. That's what mm. I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Maria, would you like to offer some, some reflections? Yes. I will try to do that uh, briefly before we open up for more of your questions. But I, I think I want to pick up on one of the things that, uh, that relates both to, to the, the, the decision to grant temporary protection to Ukrainians now and, and what uh, it, it was at some point raised during the, the situation in 2015-2016 if Syrians could get temporary protection uh, or if that could be activated then. But it was not really ever actually on the table um, in that uh, context. Uh, but uh, what? Factor, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so, and, and you mentioned also the, the in, in Poland the, the, the fact that the, the, the women uh, uh, fleeing Ukraine were uh, framed as or said to be in um, danger of being tra trafficked. So just to pick up on, the, on an observation that was made in a, another seminar a few weeks ago uh, that we organized here on... Um, on the, the risks of, of trafficking and exploitation of uh, people fleeing Ukraine in the current situation. And one of the observations that were made were that the fact that or after they had all gotten temporary protection, they are less in, in need of using informal networks um, in order to help them to cross the borders. So they're actually less exposed in that context, to put it a little bit simply, it doesn't mean that there's no risks uh, at all, because there's still people helping out and there might be um, people with uh, less good intentions um, using that, that situation. But, but overall, the fact that they have direct access to temporary protection makes them less dependent on, on using uh, different forms of facilitators to cross the borders. And I thought that's also interesting for us to, to, to look at when we discuss these irregular ways of crossing other borders because the, the, uh, people will seek a protection uh, and better uh, means for, for their lives. But and the more they... Um, the more we, we build up walls, to put it very simply, the, the more there are risks of crossing these and the more uh, there will also be uh, f everything we can call from informal to more criminal uh, networks um, that have a market to, to help out uh, these uh, people as well. So, so just to have that in mind also when we discuss uh, sort of the different migrants and those who are framed as, as, as the right migrants that we can help and, and those who, who are sort of kept at bay or, or prevented from moving uh, forward. And the questions yeah. were thousands, eh? because they have cars, they have children, they have a lot of things. Mm -hmm. How am I going to... Angelica is answering the questions for the Ukrainians from my office. She's my chief of staff. So we got questions like, OK, I, I have my car with me. How can I have it insured? Mm -hmm. So it yeah. was a different level of approach. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you did not get the recognition quickly enough to get some papers in the official Greek state, then we could not easily get them through systems mm. like that, and they yeah. can be part of a market, mm. a legal one. So, yeah. But anyhow, yeah, we mm. might also address that again for other refugee mm. flows. If mm. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for these reflections that are sort of kicking us off. Um, are there any questions uh, that are already to be asked? If not, well, you, you, you have them, yes? Then please uh, wait for the microphone. Uh, and um, please introduce yourself. 
with it, like your name and whatever affiliation you'd like to give. And if we try and keep them relatively brief, and we'll collect three, four or so. So I hope you have something to write on maybe, and then uh, we'll pick up. Okay, please. My name is uh, Farida Ahmadi. I was born in Afghanistan, and I'm writer and social anthropologist. And I see many, many thanks to Prio for organizing such meaningful uh, seminar. I feel me good. And my question of all of you, that uh, you talk about uh, human suffering. And I would like to ask you, do you reflect the main essential problem and causes of immigration and what we should do. All research, this is my limitation. I research this one, this one. And after all, nobody uh, talk about uh, the main question. Can you reflect and see something what we should do? Thank you. Hi, um, thank you for a really good seminar so far. Um, I'm Mathilde, I'm a master's student um, in human rights at the University of Oslo. Um, and my question is, um, a lot of academics and scholars have started to talk about the end of asylum, or the end of the asylum process, because there is an increasing attempt to externalise borders in the EU. Um, I'm half Danish, so I've been following the, the Danish... Um, attempts to do that because they're quite in the forefront of this unfortunately so if you have any comments on kind of the future of migration and what this means for humanitarian borders and, and crossings and the costs and effects of this um, tendency thank you uh, hi this is Ilayda Bakırcı second secretary of the Turkish embassy uh, Mr. Logotetis, you mentioned in your presentation that there are allegations of pushbacks. The pushbacks of Greek authorities are actually reported by many respectable international organizations such as UNHCR, IOM, Council of Europe and European Parliament. And uh, just in the last three, two years, 34,000 refugees were pushed back to Turkey and our National Coast Guard sparing is most of the time and energy to save these migrants from uh, pushbacks and these are clearly human rights violations. Also Turkey is meticulously working on preventing illegal migration and we are currently hosting around 6 million refugees and I think this proves that we are actually fulfilling our responsibilities on this issue. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, presentations. My name is Florian and I work for the Norwegian Agency for Quality Assurance in Education. And I have a rather specific uh, question to the uh, General Secretary and that refers to um, undocumented refugees or more specifically refugees with prior education that they cannot document. How is that handled on the ground? Thank you. Meaning a doctor or a lawyer, for example. A doctor or a lawyer that comes as a refugee, how can he practice medicine in Greece? That's the question, yes? And any, any kind of education. 
Yeah, okay. Thank you. And then I'd, I'd also like to encourage the panel to, if you can, when you respond, try and see if you can be quite precise in terms of the words we use. Because, you know, we know that refugees can be the legal status. It can also be our assumption about someone who's escaping danger. So when you use different words like migrants and refugees, I think it's helpful for the discussion if we try to see if we can be precise to say what we mean. Otherwise, there's a risk we speak past each other and, you know, I, that uh, this is always a problem, though. It's, <laughs> we, are talking, we are referring to the legal status or to a name. That's the question. And because I think all of you have refugees been... in legal status. Eh? Exactly, and I think all of you have been really um, have done a really good job in referring to to people first and foremost as people with human rights and who always deserve dignity. But I think uh, also some of the questions are really good and very sort of to the point, but they do require us to be precise. Because there's something about deadly borders, and then there's something about the right to seek asylum, and then there's something about whether or not you have the right to actually get that status. And so there are some inherent dilemmas here, and I think it, you know, we do, us, do ourselves a disfavor if we, if we you know, sort of brush over it and aren't precise, because there are some dilemmas here, and there are some really tricky issues. So if we can, I think this is an atmosphere where we're able to be quite open, and let's see whether we can maybe be also precise in the terminology in that sense. So I would like to give you the word first, Manos, to, to reflect on whichever, whichever of the comments I will take like. it from the last question for, concerning education and recognized rights to practice. This is a really delicate thing. Um, in the last few months, we received a lot of women from Afghanistan. They were calling themselves judges, but they were religious judges, according to for family affairs. So the question is that, are they judges? They Can they practice law? No, is the answer. Because they didn't study law, they were just that. So there are many different intercultural, international characteristics that uh, you might be called a doctor or a midwife in your country, but you do not have what it takes to be recognized and practice medicine in Europe. There are examinations you can study. You have to learn the language first, as it is here. For example, I'm a doctor if I want to practice medicine in Norway, in order to get a residence permit here and practice medicine, I have to learn Norwegian. And then give some exams in Norwegian, and then start practicing medicine, having a, a degree in a Greek university. So there are things like that, and there is no such thing as a simple answer. It has to do with case-by-case case scenario. You have to prove that you have the right to practice medicine, as it is perceived in our part of the world. And then, of course, you can practice it if you have the certain characteristics that uh, everyone that comes to a different country has to have. So there is no positive discrimination, let's say that. Of course, it is harder for someone that comes as a refugee to a country, but uh, still there is more support for free, if you ask me. So there are a lot of lessons uh, for free to learn Greek, and stuff like that that you do not get, for example, if you come uh, as a golden visa uh, guy. Anyhow, uh, it will be interesting. Greece needs labor. We have 130,000 open places for labor in different fields and sectors. So for us, it will be a, a huge issue if we could actually get uh, the post that we could on the field. Uh, we have a different approach. We let people as volunteers to practice their specialty. 
and to help and support. Uh, my, myself as a doctor, I had a wonderful cooperation with many colleagues that came from Syria or Afghanistan during the process. But uh, I had to sign all the documents because they, this was done under my signature, under my responsibility. And it was not work, it was volunteer work. So I didn't pay them for what they were offering. So this is the approach. And we cannot change it in any other way because it will be a positive discrimination. In labor, of course, they have the right to practice. There are the minimum standards is that they can communicate uh, to work in labor, like simple labor, not educated labor. Concerning the pushbacks from the Turkish embassy, it is really interesting coming from the Turkish side. And thank you very much for everything that you are doing from your side on supporting the 6.5 million with the European financial support in your country. But it's really strange to talk about pushbacks coming from Turkey. And for us, it is really interesting because, generally speaking, talking about pushback, it means that your country is a dangerous country. And the people that are staying in Turkey are under the danger of being pushed back to another country or being prosecuted because they are in the country. This is a pushback. A pushback is when you return, it's the, the law of non-refoulement. Refoulement is when you return someone to a country where they are in danger. We perceive Turkey as not a dangerous country, so legally speaking, there is no such thing as a pushback as it is stated, since Turkey is safe. If Turkey perceives all these things as a pushback, it means that they recognize that they are a dangerous country. And people that are returned to Turkey, if they are, they are under danger. So we expect to have all this from other states, but when it comes from Turkey, it is really interesting. This is my, com my comment on the pushback thing. So, uh, so concerning the grant, uh, the overuse of asylum, uh, someone referred to mm. asylum that might be extinct in the future. There is an overuse. We had flows of people coming in asking for asylum in the past. <coughs> asylum is a procedure which has a, a result. So it is a yes or a no in the question. Not everyone that goes through the procedure should get a yes. Because if this is the case, we should all agree that asylum is actually extinct. Everyone that comes into a country and says, I want the protection of the country, should get it. So if we have a procedure, you have a yes and a no. And if you have a procedure that was meant to be for some certain reasons, and then you have an overuse, which might lead to a manipulation of the procedure, then yes, there is a danger that at some point, we might go back and rethink how we should offer. And this is a danger, a clear danger. This is coming from a Greek. We Greeks were migrants in the past. We migrated the whole world. We have a minority in Australia. We have a minority in the United States. <laughs> we have a minority in many other parts of the world, Germany as well. We are actually talking in Europe about the legal migration where it has nothing to do with asking for asylum. It's another path, another way of, it is a bilateral way. So people who are seeking a better life should find it. 
if you ask me, but on a different way. Different way was the Gestarbeiter way of Germany in the 60s. Was the way that Greeks migrated or Italian or Irish people migrated to United States in the past. United States said that we need 100,000 workers. People applied. They were transferred there in an organized manner without any threat for their being. Because with this way, we actually, as societies, push people to choose the really difficult way to cross from Libya to Italy. I would never do it even with a cruiser, and they do it with a thing. So we are actually telling these people that because we have failed to find a legal pathway to get you to a better life, you should better try this way, which is the most dangerous one. So yes, there is a, a, a huge danger when we reopen the debate on asylum, that things might be different. And yes, uh, I think that there are manipulations, as it, there is in every offer that you make. It is a human nature to take advantage of what is there, and we have to walk in the shoes of these people to understand why they do it, and they do it, but it's okay. For me, it's normal. I gave out vulnerabilities, and I had to convince 39 out of the 50 people in the boat that they have no blood sugar problem, as they were telling me. Because one of the beneficiaries told them what the blood sugar problem means, and that the blood sugar problem gives you vulnerability. And they were all telling me the same story. Yes, but I excused them. Because this is the only way they have to do it. And coming back to the first question, I would be really happy if there was one answer to what is the main reason people leave. I think that there are multiple answers to this question. There is one that can be part of all the answers, though. Hope of a, of a better life. Safe, better. That's the, the only thing. So this is, in every person that I have debated with or talked with, this is the only common thing that they have. Everyone is fleeing his country with the hope of a better future for him or his family. Better means safer, richer, with a job, with a, the ability. Because you, you said that you come from Afghanistan, and this is really interesting for me. I mean, how can I refuse someone to be called a refugee if he comes from Afghanistan? Currently. I would say to anyone that just tell me that you want your daughter to go to school. You are a refugee. You came to Greece and you'd say that you want your daughter to go to school. You are a refugee. Because if you go back to Afghanistan currently, they do not allow the young girls to go to school. So, and the family might suffer if they declare that they want their children to go to school. So they are refugees, just by just saying that. This is the current situation. But to make it a general comment, hope, I think, would be the answer. And it is not the only one. Eh? Thank you. Thank you very much.
Um, we're getting close to the end of the seminar, so I suggest that we give the, the three other panelists a chance to give some brief comments um, on whatever you would like to pick up from the questions or also from what Manas was, was saying now. So Twitter, if you go first, and then we... we yeah, proceed. I also want to just follow up on, on the human suffering um, discussion. And it's I totally agree, it's individual. What causes the hum, human to suffer? It's not one answer uh, or one solution. Um, of course, the root cause uh, has to be solved in each country. Uh, that creates this... Uh, this suffer and uh, of course leaving your country being forced to leave your country will um, create suffer that might never go away um, and I also want to say that what we do and what we all we all do uh, working in the camps is kind of just a temporary uh, band-aid to the wound it's not solving the suffer or the the problem at all it's not fixing anything but it's keeping people able to continue and hopefully at the latest stage um, be able to work work on their uh, the traumas they might have and and to to work on their the the suffering that they feel inside so it's, it's a temporary solution we, we are doing um, all organizations working in in conditions like this but we also see that some of these temporary solutions are also working quite well, especially when it comes to always involving everyone in the camp in the work. Uh, and that's the way we work. We always involve everyone living there, you know, asking them first, what do you need? What do you need us to do here? Um, because we don't always come up with, uh, you know, we don't know uh, what the people living in the camps might need most. So we always ask, uh, make needs assessment and Involved, like in Nea Kavala camp, 5% of the camp residents actually work with us as volunteers. Uh, and that creates a, a really a special, what can I say, cooperation between uh, the NGO and people living there, which I think is very positive because people feel included and involved and, uh, and actually learn something while they are in, living in a camp. So, um, yeah, that was... Yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, I will also touch upon the uh, uh, your question, and uh, thinking about Poland and what is happening. I think what we can do, like we cannot change the world, what would be nice, uh, but locally we can like not to uh, perpetuate the trauma and not to add another trauma to the trauma people are bringing, uh, like fleeing from war. So, for example, in, I know, Polish-Belarusian border, there is a trauma that we create in people coming to Poland, wanting to enter the country, but also in local community who is uh, traumatized because they cannot help. Their, their help is criminalized. The soldiers are criminalized because many of them, I, I know, I know, are also women or uh, mothers, fathers, and now they are made to push back children and family with small children away. So uh, uh, what we can do, like we create like the best condition we can. And also what you also said, uh, like 
recognizing agency and also you talk about the Ukrainians who who had a really different idea of being in a uh, like host country that the that we have so uh allowing people like not only taking care of them uh, but also like allowing them to act and to be active uh in deciding on their lives uh with our support but like support that recognizes their independence agency and uh, their way of life uh, so they can rather like work on their trauma and not to perpetuate uh, this and uh, yeah so that's the show yeah. I will be brief, but thank you very much also already for, for very good uh, responses here. I'll start with, with your question on, on um, which we have gotten already uh, useful perspectives on, but to respond also from if we are doing research on why people migrate. Uh, so for, for me personally, my, my focus is more on, on these humanitarian borders and the EU responses, but there, there is the, the, the research, also research happening here at PRIO. We are, um, with Marta and myself, we are part of a large EU project that looks at the connections between development and migration, which is not necessarily unidirectional relationship. It's, yeah, so it requires a quite large EU collaboration project on that, um, led by our colleague Jürgen Karling uh, and called Mignex. And just to illustrate also the, 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 the various aspects that, that we research also, and that is researched by also by many other migration research environments. Um, our same colleague also has a project looking at the aspirations to migrate, but what that does to a society. So people who don't necessarily end up migrating, but these hopes and aspirations to go somewhere else, what does that do to the society that people live in uh, also? So just just, just have mentioned uh, that. And then I'll very briefly uh, round up with commenting both of your remarks also, Marta, on, on the importance of uh, uh, us using or being as precise as we can in the concepts we use, but also tying it back to your comment about the externalization of the borders and that attempts to, to, to place an asylum procedure in third countries, uh, as, as Denmark has, has engaged in. And, uh, yeah. And, um, and, and just to reiterate that, uh, that people fleeing, um, for different reasons, have uh, and anyone has a right to seek asylum a state that, that doesn't mean that they will have it or that the state has an obligation to grant it but everyone has a right to seek asylum and that's our obligation as as, as european state signatories of the 1951 convention to allow for the right to actually seek it and the right to seek it is to do that in conditions which is not on a boat at sea to take that example or in a third country outside the, the EU. And the uh, part of the process of seeking asylum is that you need to be in the country you seek asylum to. So you cannot seek asylum from your home before you come to the EU, for instance, or or whichever country you want to seek asylum to. So so that is, so, so since you talked about the deadly borders, I, I also think we should decouple what happens at the border and the control and management there uh, is, is, is one thing. Uh, the right to life is, is one consideration there. And the right to stay, to remain or, or not, um, and perhaps, is, is something else that can be processed afterwards. And, and of course, not everyone will have the ultimate right to stay, but, but that should not be uh, a reason for, for, for creating um, 
uh, more, more human suffering than, than needed at, at the very border. Yeah. But can I, can I have just <laughs> we have to define again asylum, allow me to say. Because we have half of our applications being in overuse, coming from Albanian citizens that want to prolong their stay within the premises of Greece. Overstayers of a different reason, because they have the right to apply for asylum, everyone has the right to apply for asylum, they apply for asylum. With a system that had the first interview four years after, he got the residence permit as an asylum seeker for four years in the country. This is a manipulation of the system, and this forces the system. We had American volunteers working with in an NGO in the camp applying for asylum just to get a residence permit in Greece as an overstayer. This is a manipulation. Asylum is something sacred. It's protection against threat to your life. And it became public with this discrimination between the words migrants and refugees. That is why we have to stick to the terminology and be precise on when, what we are actually talking about. Because there are not only good people in the world. Eh? There will be people that will try to manipulate and there will be, should be someone trying to guard against them. Because then the most vulnerable ones lose the right. If we kill asylum, people who actually need asylum will be left without any opportunity whatsoever. So we have to protect it, we have to talk about it really bluntly, bluntly, and we have to understand that there are people there trying to manipulate. So we should be overprotective to those needed and really strict to those that are trying to kill a procedure that is to protect the weak. Thank you. I think at least we can maybe, uh, all of us probably, probably agree that there are people in need of protection in the world. And then that there are dilemmas around who's supposed to be offering that protection, right? And we live in a, in a, in a world which is a nation-state system. Uh, and, you know, we have representatives of states, and then we have civil society, and then we have researchers. And thankfully, we all have our different roles. Uh, and, you know, some things here are inherent dilemmas, such as the fact that Turkey is hosting so many refugees. Uh, we could mention Pakistan, we could mention many other countries uh, that are hosting a majority of the refugees in the world today. Um, and being a refugee in those countries is something very, very different to being a refugee in Greece or in Norway or in Poland. And so these inherent inequalities that are there, you know, what, however we discuss, we won't escape them. But I think at least we can acknowledge they are there. Uh, and then also really appreciate that work that is being done on the ground and the sort of way that all of you, I think, are meeting people as people with dignity, whatever the, the failures of the systems around. So I think with that, uh, I'd like to thank the panelists a lot. I'd also like to thank Droppen Ihave and the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies who've co-hosted this event with Prio. And thanks for all of you for being here, for your questions and comments. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.